Hey, repeat listeners, you're about to hear the fourth episode in our series. And if you haven't heard the first three episodes, you know what I'm going to say. It's going to be a bit confusing. We suggest you listen to those. Start at number one, listen to those first, and then come back for four. Thanks. Testing, testing, testing. Okay. Let's just call this guy. After a deputy shoots someone, one of the first calls is to homicide. Homicide investigators come out to the scene, whether the shooting is fatal or not. And their work, what they write in reports, is the basis of deciding the facts. And for years, one of the investigators they relied on was this guy. Hello. Hey, I'm looking for Sergeant Fredendahl. Uh, Just call me John. It's a lot easier. Oh, yeah, John. Thanks. Homicide was the last job John Fredendahl had before he retired from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department in 2016. They're known as dogged investigators. In fact, Homicide's logo is a bulldog. Yeah, in 2009, I, I went to uh, went to Homicide in 2009, and I had at the time I had about a seven years left, and you know my kids were uh, grown and and uh, done, you know, uh, still playing sports, but I. I was bored being uh, being a field sergeant, and I've, I've been used to working my whole life, so I couldn't couldn't think of a better way to go out. So, and I always wanted to go there. I just couldn't make uh, couldn't make the commitment to go into homicide when you know my kids were younger and stuff. So, I right. Well, they got that. that bulldog reputation, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. And uh, like I said, I, I was bored being a being a regular uh, you know field sergeant, watch commander, and watch sergeant at a station. So I had to. Uh, had to get back in the game. My wife, uh, I was driving my wife crazy, and she told me that, uh, you know, find something that you want to do that you really, you know, desire to do because I can't live with you. Um, <laughs> being bored and uh, unhappy with, uh, you know, regular uh, sergeant functions. Do you work with a lot of officer-involved shooting cases? Yeah, our, uh, we were assigned, uh, you know, obviously we did, uh, we handled murder investigations, but we did, uh, uh, all deputy-involved shootings uh, in L.A. County. Uh, we also handled officer-involved shootings for about 45 different uh, municipal uh, police department uh, agencies in L.A. County as well. How many of those do you think you rolled out on? <laughs> uh, let's see. I don't know. I, I'd say probably 50. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. 50 officer-involved shootings crossed Fred and Dahl's desk over his seven years at Homicide. One of those was Deputy Gonzalo Nzunza's shooting of Tanel Billups. I wanted to ask you, why, uh, why this case? I'm just curious because it was so long ago, and there's been so many other n- noteworthy, you know, um, shooting incidences over the years. I was just curious. Well, it was. We were specifically looking at um, officers who were involved in multiple shootings, but I really got into this case because um, the suspect seemed to have a completely different story than the deputies. Which I imagine, I mean, from an investigator point of view, is that uncommon? Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Yeah, it's not unusual to have a completely uh, uh, different story. I mean, you do have those that, uh, you know, um, that collaborate fully 
um, with what the uh, what the officers say. But uh, to be honest, in in my line of work, when everything is too exact and too straightforward for me, it raises a red flag. Um, you know what I mean? Because yeah, it's there, interesting. There, yeah, there are discrepancies. There are. There, I like discrepancies because discrepancies can be be easily remedied with. Uh, other witness statements, uh, physical evidence, video surveillance, you know what I mean? So like for me, if, if I get a completely different story from the suspect, um, it's not unusual. It was just what I had called up Fred and all to discuss. The discrepancies, the inconsistencies in the records I'd seen from the shooting investigation of Tanel Billups. If you think about it, Americans give their police officers an extraordinary power, the power to carry a gun and the power to kill people when they believe safety requires it. It's a power we've accepted as a necessary function of law enforcement. And in some departments, they've added layers of scrutiny to check this power. And yet, after months of reporting on the shooting of Tanel Billups, I'm still uncertain about what happened, uncertain about whether the investigators got it right or if something got in the way of the truth. I'm Annie Gilbertson. You're listening to Repeat from KPCC. This is Episode 4, The Investigation. Investigations are important. It's the start of the record on which big decisions are made, like whether the shooting was justified or whether the officer committed a crime. Take this example from St. Louis, a part of the country that's been in the spotlight for police shootings. Hundreds of protesters filled the streets of St. Louis Friday after the acquittal of a white police officer in the shooting death of a black suspect. The events surrounding the killing of 24-year-old Anthony Lamar Smith began in the parking lot of a fast food restaurant on December 20th, 2011. Like Billups' case, this shooting in St. Louis had two different stories. The officer said the man was armed. But in this case, prosecutors accused the officer of planting a gun, said it was murder. The prosecutors failed to convince a judge. Stockley is the fourth officer in four months to be acquitted of murder charge involving a black victim. People were upset. St. Louis erupted in protest. City leaders could have said any number of things at the time. But St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner called for this change. We have to look at how we have an independent investigation. Right now, the police department investigates themselves. So if we want to have a fair and unbiased investigation, we need to address that investigation so we can pursue justice fairly, regardless of the outcome. A prosecutor's case is only as strong as the evidence they are given. And the issue, Gardner said was the investigation. It's police policing themselves. In California, it is not uncommon for law enforcement agencies to be tasked with investigating their own officers' shootings. L.A. County Sheriff's Department officials have told me they bring professionalism and skill to such investigations. They think they do a fine job. That the district attorney's office provides an additional set of eyes. The DA's office told me it requests more work from investigators in most cases that the system effectively holds officers accountable. They see no reason to change it. But others disagree. Critics believe local law enforcement agencies and the district attorneys are too close, that having them do the work opens up the potential for a conflict of interest. And with it, 
the risk of influencing, or the perception of influencing outcomes in law enforcement's favor. The investigation into the shooting of Tanel Billups began the same day he was shot. From what I can tell in records, Sergeant Fredendahl was attentive and precise from the moment he arrived in South L.A. He wrote in the homicide report that he got to the command post at 1.29 p.m. Not 1.30, 1.29. Picture a team of sheriff's personnel buzzing about, police tape strung up around the houses on 92nd Street. At least two officials from the district attorney's office are on the scene. Department leaders always stress this to me, the number of people it takes, the second set of eyes from the DA's office. In the investigation into the shooting of Tanel Billups, DA officials sat in on interviews with witnesses. Two deputies briefed Fredendahl right after he arrived. According to Fredendahl's report, the officer said a deputy named Gonzalo Nzunza confronted a burglary suspect. The suspect, they told Fredendahl, was armed with a handgun. Fredendahl would need statements from witnesses. He'd need physical evidence. He did a walkthrough to understand the series of events. He started with the house that had been broken into. It was not just Nzunza's actions he was looking into. He was documenting the entire incident, both Billups' actions and Nzunza's. What did it look like? Drawers, drawers were open, contents of drawers, uh, cabinets were, were strewn about the floor. And uh, there was forced entry, if I remember correctly, as well. So it was obvious that a residential burglary had occurred there. We were taken to the location, obviously, where one of the deputies had discarded his shotgun in front of a, an apartment complex where it had malfunctioned. We went to the area uh, where the gun was recovered. We ultimately went to the radio car where the gun was secured in the trunk of the car for safekeeping. We went to the garage where, where the arrest and the apprehension of the suspect occurred, which I recall was, was rather uncomfortable because our Special Enforcement Bureau SWAT members uh, had uh, introduced uh, tear gas into that. Fredendahl began reconstructing what happened. Another retired officer once explained detective work to me as recreating a movie, scene by scene, from the evidence on up. At 5.33 p.m., four hours after he began the investigation, Fredendahl was face-to-face with Nzunza. According to transcripts I got from Billups, Fredendahl and Sergeant Ken Clark pulled Nzunza into the captain's conference room at Century Station. Nzunza's lawyer was there with him, paid for by the sheriff's union. Fredendahl asked, was there a weapon recovered out there? Nzunza said, yes, there was. Fredendahl, and who recovered that weapon? Nzunza. I did. So, and then you mentioned um, that the the weapon um, was picked up by the deputy who was involved in the shooting. Was that unusual? Not unusual at all. Uh, We prefer that it stay in place uh, for obvious reasons. However, as I spoke about earlier, that this situation was dynamic and evolving I guess the the thing I thought of when he, in the interview, said that he had picked up the gun was, does that somehow change sort of or raise questions about evidence handling? I mean, if the deputy who is 
himself will go under investigation for this shooting, is handling evidence in the shooting. Um, does that raise any kind of issues from your well, point of view? Us. Not not for us. Why had they trusted in Zunza? Put yourself in Fred and Dahl's shoes. They had physical evidence, a gun. They were relying on Nzunza's statements to connect it to Billups. Nzunza's partner, Eric Sibrian, stood nearby, said he saw Nzunza pick up a gun. And they had Billups' history, a known gang member and convicted burglar, and Billups had lied to Fred and Dahl. You also had to interview the suspect. Well, I mean, the, his story was that he just, I mean, he, you know, um, that his car broke down, but but then when officers were on the scene, he, he thought that they were gang members. He did not know that they were deputies. Um, to me, I, I don't know how you would mistake a deputy for a gang member. And when I read it, I just thought, you know, this is a guy who uh, was in the midst of committing a burglary, stood to have a lot of time in prison because of the three strikes law. Um, he gets caught and he makes up a, a story to avoid these charges. I mean, what were you thinking when you heard his version? Well, obviously, this is quite some time ago. And, and honestly, I don't I don't remember my thought process. Um, I can tell you that because uh, our conversation is is bringing back uh, memories of, the, of that incident. And I unfortunately did not get a chance to review this case in full. However, I, I, we did follow up, and I believe it was at the scene um, we determined that the uh, vehicle started first turn of the key, and the vehicle uh, was fully operable. Yeah. In this case, for Mr. Billups, I really don't care. Um, in this case, that his story was so unbelievable. Billups now admits he lied about that part. But he also told Fredendahl he didn't have a gun, something he still says today. And he insists he was not the only liar here. Billups said Deputy Nzunza had lied too. Such an accusation could have altered the course of the investigation, spurred the top brass to launch a new one with Nzunza as the subject. But as far as I can tell, that's not what happened. I asked Fredendahl if he had pulled Nzunza's file, the officer's past conduct, he said he would have if he needed to confirm or rule out a pattern on Nzunza's part. But Fredendahl told me he didn't think this case warranted it. So he didn't. He told me it becomes apparent at a certain point that it is not criminal in nature. I take him to mean it became apparent Deputy Nzunza had not committed a crime. That the criminal here was Billups. What struck me the most was that it, even the deputy who was standing right next to Nzunza says he didn't see why Nzunza shot, that he didn't see a weapon in the suspect's hands. So in that case, it's like it's not even a deputy versus a suspect's word. It's a deputy versus a deputy's word. And from an investigative standpoint, it, I mean, it must be so difficult to decide what the facts are. Well, again, we're, we're fact finders. We, we take what the, uh, what, what the deputy personnel uh, tell us. Uh, in this case, the shooter deputy, his partner, was behind him. Uh, I do recall there was a fence out in front, a uh, chain link fence, and there was trash cans. So, again, it, uh, it is what it is. It seems like, to me, from reading your report, that at the end of the day, you seemed really confident that um, Deputy Nzunza was telling the truth. Well, here's the thing. We, 
we as part of uh, homicide, we don't render opinions or conclusions. We, we document the, the facts. The facts are documented um, throughout the case. Our job is just to, uh, again, be fair and objective. Fair, objective, thorough, professional. Frendel hit this point many times on the call. He said it was a point of pride. He called it a duty. He said it was their duty to the public. Fredendahl's work was handed off to the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. It's the DA's job to decide what to make of it all, to decide if the shooting was legally justified. They have a special unit that reviews all these cases, anytime an officer shoots someone. It was up to them to determine whether Nzunza had committed a crime. The DA's office told me in a written statement, they do not favor an officer's point of view, but consider all witness statements and determine their credibility based on supporting physical evidence. And the DA's office said it considers all the facts of the case, including an officer's past conduct. They declined to discuss Deputy Nzunza's shooting specifically. The final decision was issued by Deputy District Attorney Jason Lustig. It was four months after the shooting. Billups' actions, Lustig wrote in a letter to the Sheriff's Department, placed Deputy Nzunza and others in the area in imminent danger of death or great bodily injury, causing Deputy Nzunza to respond with deadly force. Given the rapidly evolving, life-threatening situation that confronted Deputy Nzunza, we conclude that he acted lawfully in self-defense and defense of Deputy Cibrian. Okay. Well, you think, I mean, do you think I'm off base here and looking closely at this investigation? I mean, do you think it's a, it's a misplaced energy or what do you think I should know? So No, I mean, you know, you're an investigative reporter and, and I think, uh, you know, the, the public um, needs to know and, and wants to know what's going on. I do too. But the sheriff's department had blocked me from getting the records of its full investigation into Nzunza's shootings. If they had wanted to hand it over, they could have. But they didn't. They were asking me to trust them. Would you? I had reasons to be skeptical. The sheriff's department had mishandled investigations in the past. In at least one high-profile case, manipulated an investigation, shielded officers from scrutiny. These officers worked in the jail, where many deputies start their careers. I got a close look during a trial I covered in 2017. The accused was the former sheriff himself, Lee Baca. A devastating blow to the L.A. Sheriff's Department, a scandal involving abuse, lies, and cover The FBI is looking into allegations of civil rights abuses at L.A.'s county jail. This is the absolute worst jail system in the country in terms of the violence, the abuse, and the failure to The biggest jail in the world, the biggest jail in the country, and the biggest jail in the world uh, is now in trouble. The FBI has been investigating the L.A. county jail system in secret for months now. It all came to a head in the summer of 2011, when the sheriff's department discovered the FBI had gone into the jails to investigate. The FBI, they'd learn, was investigating allegations of deputy misconduct, allegations of deputies beating inmates. I won't get into all the details. The thing to know is Sheriff Baca and a group of sheriff's employees tried to block the feds, obstruct the investigation. Baca then lied to federal investigators. The feds won convictions against 10 officials for their part in the scheme, 
including the sheriff, whose case is on appeal. What we have seen is that Mr. Baca allowed corruption to flourish within his department, and he created an environment of toxic leadership. Two things struck me about Baca's case. First, the motive. Federal prosecutors said, quote, rather than fulfill his sworn duty to uphold the law and protect the public, Lee Baca made a decision to protect what he viewed as his empire. The second, the method. Some of the convicted employees were internal investigators, the investigators whose job it is to root out misconduct. It's their job to police the police. Instead, they were part of the scheme. I want to point out, they were not homicide officers, the type who worked police shootings like Fred and Dahl. Instead, some of these officers worked for the Internal Criminal Investigations Bureau. They investigate sheriff's employees accused of other crimes. And the scandal, it got many people in L.A. County thinking about how well the police police themselves, or whether the power to investigate their own too often protected crooked or violent officers and shielded the department and the elected sheriff from scrutiny. L.A. County officials were alarmed. In 2011, the County Board of Supervisors decided to launch its own investigation into inappropriate use of force by deputies in the jails. If true, they wrote, these allegations point to an extremely serious breakdown. They started a commission to investigate and tapped a former federal prosecutor to get to the bottom of things. Her name is Miriam Krinsky. Um, I really, I couldn't say no when the opportunity presented itself. Um, you it know, felt there, important, right? It, it was clearly important, and there are some moments in time where whatever you're doing, you just have to drop everything. Krinsky told me she takes it seriously when law enforcement crosses the line. I told her I'd been thinking a lot about internal investigators and their role in the jail scandal. Like, it just made me question whether or not the internal investigators had been doing a real adequate job on any level. Right. I mean, certainly, you know, I think what we saw reinforced kind of the findings of our commission that internal affairs had failed the department, that, you know, not only were they understaffed, but again, their moral compass had been misaligned by the leadership. Krinsky and the commission held public hearings in downtown L.A. over the course of 2012. Dozens of uniformed deputies filled the auditorium. They sat shoulder to shoulder, rows of beige shirts with stars on their chest. The press was there, too. Anything said was fodder for the morning paper. And yet, officers stepped forward and testified. There were some incredibly emotional moments during our hearings. And there were some... Just very uh, c- clearly members of the department who felt a lot of angst in coming forward and talking about what they had seen. Um, I recall in particular um, the testimony of, um, of Captain Bornman. Welcome, Captain. Could you give us uh, your name again, please? My name is Michael Bornman, B-O-R-N-M-A-N. Thank you, Mr. Bornman. Captain Bornman testified in July 2012. I couldn't reach him for comment. But at hearings, Borman talked about the disturbing patterns he'd seen working in the jail. What's his demeanor? Um, you know, I think he was, um, 
I think he had tremendous credibility because it was clear that it was not easy for him. You know, he was perhaps not quite as extreme as a reluctant witness because he was there and we didn't force anyone. We couldn't subpoena every, anyone. I think he was there because he wanted to do the right thing, as did others who testified before us. But I think it was clear that he wasn't happy about having uh, to be there, that he wasn't enjoying it, that it was a painful moment for him. Part of Bornman's job was to go through investigations into allegations of deputy misconduct and performance reviews. He had seen what had gone wrong. And what is a request for an employee performance review? Uh, performance review request is made. It's, it's kind of like a matter of mechanism of the computer system. If an employee uses like a certain amount of numbers, uses of force, fires their weapon, um, gets so many complaints, if they reach a threshold, that creates this memo request that goes to the captain requesting that they review the employee's behavior. doesn't mean they've done anything wrong. It's just a, an early warning system. And how did you find these requests for employee performance reviews? I opened the wrong drawer one day, and I, I found them uh, in a folder. How many were there? There were 32. And around what period of time did you find them? When did I find them? Right. Probably March or April of 2010. To whom had these requests been directed? They were about a year and a half old, so they would have all been addressed to Captain Cruz. And you said that they were around a year and a half old, so did it appear as though these had been unattended to during that year, year and a half or so period of time? Well, it was clear they had been unattended to. And what's the value of prompt attention to them? Well, it's kind of the same thing. If, if someone's doing something wrong, we need to let them know. Or if we're putting them in harm's way, we need to change policy. Or if, you know, if, if what they're doing is okay, we need to validate that too. We need to give the employee feedback about their performance. As you started to look through them, what did you see in terms of the type of conduct or the number of um, acts that had triggered the request for review? Um, they were all uses of force, and there were some of them had a lot of uses of force. And by a lot, what do you mean? Double digit in the 20s. Did you have concerns based on what you were seeing as you were looking through these files? Well, in general, I was having concern about the, the number of uses of force I was seeing. And what were your concerns specifically in terms of the number? The numbers were too high. It, it appeared to, I had never seen that much force used anywhere else that I've worked. Okay, so in your three decades plus, this stood out, having never seen something like this before? Yes. You mentioned concerns in terms of the number of these that you saw. Did you also have concerns in regard to how well the process had worked? Yeah, it appeared the process wasn't working. These hearings lasted about a year. In September 2012, the commission released its findings. It found the sheriff's department had a pattern of excessive or unnecessary force in the jails. That accountability over these abusive deputies was lax. The department rarely found use of force out of policy. Krinsky told me that's a red flag. And the department almost never found deputies were being dishonest. Commissioners took notice. 
they're saying we're troubled by the fact that there are certain words that are used over and over again in force reports, that it looks like it's cookie cutter versions of how to describe what happened, you know, suggesting that, that there's problems with the credibility of those reports. The sheriff's department had failed to adequately police itself, the commission found. Rather, the then undersheriff, Paul Tanaka, quote, promoted an environment of lax and untimely discipline of deputy misconduct. Had not sent the right signals, that their moral compass had gone astray, that it was more about circling the wagons and protecting their own, as opposed to really taking seriously their constitutional duty to protect the civil rights of those entrusted to their care when they come into our county jails. Krinsky has taken on a new role. These days, she's the executive director at Fair and Just Prosecution, an organization that works with prosecutors to make the criminal justice system less punitive. And concerns about the L.A. County Sheriff shirking its oversight responsibilities have led to some changes. The county elected a new sheriff, and he replaced a bunch of the leadership. The sheriff's department now has an inspector general and a civilian oversight commission. And it occurred to me... I'd been relying on the reports investigators made about officer shootings. I'd been relying on the material they collected, the testimony of other officers at the scene. Now I had seen firsthand that the system of supervising and investigating deputy conduct at the sheriff's department hasn't always worked. I knew I had to go beyond the department's records. Maybe there was new information I could get if I went out on my own. So I did. That's after this break. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. I decided to open my own investigation into the shooting of Tanel Billups. And to start, I need to know who saw what. I needed witnesses. Remember, Deputy Nzunza shot Billups at 8.30 in the morning in a residential area. Someone must have seen something. Finding them was a way to collect new information, flesh out what investigators had found or missed. A report from the sheriff's investigation mentions two witnesses across the street from the shooting, a father and a daughter, Investigators interviewed them, but I don't have the tape. I had a two-page summary of the conversation investigators wrote afterward that I got from Billups. It said the young woman was woken up by gunshots. She looked out her window and saw three to four uniformed deputies standing in front of 92nd Street. They had their guns drawn. She heard the deputies yelling at someone to, quote, come out. The report said she could hear a male yelling back at deputies, quote, I have a gun. That didn't seem to fit the official timeline, so I wanted to find out more. But the witnesses' names were redacted, blacked out with pen. I drove to 92nd Street, hoping to find them. Hey, 
we're just looking into a shooting that happened here a couple years ago. Did you live here then? It was like a cop shooting. A cop shot a, a burglary suspect. Hey, how's it going? Uh, we're just talking to some neighbors about a shooting that happened here a few years ago. Shooting? It was an officer shooting, a deputy. How many years ago you said this? It was 2011. I got all kinds of responses. A simple shake of the head, no. Ignoring me at the door. One woman said, which shooting? Don't you know there are many shootings? You're going to have to be more specific. I went back again and again. I narrowed down the potential location of the witnesses to the blue triplex. Each of the three doors faced the burglarized house across the street. I saw a car with a young woman pull into the driveway. It was raining. I rushed up to catch her before she went inside. Um, I'm looking for somebody that lives in this um, group of houses who was a witness to a shooting a few years ago. She's a ways off, on the other side of a gate that rolls over the driveway. You can't hear her very well in my recording. She told me they'd lived there for years, but she didn't remember the shooting. I pressed her. Was anyone else living here at the time? Yeah, her sister. But she's since moved. Yeah, I mean, I'm just like... I, do, I mean, I came all the way back down here because it's, like, so important that I find who this person was. So, I don't know. If you could just ask your sister. She finally agreed. Maybe she just wanted to get out of the rain. I took her info. Things moved quickly from there. I sent the woman the department's report and asked her to give it to her sister. Her sister's name is Evelyn. We're withholding her last name because of safety concerns. Turns out, she was the daughter in the report. The one woken up by gunshots. Finally, I had my witness. So, yeah, so I've just been trying to figure out who the um, who this witness was for a while. Um, and so I'm so thrilled that we finally touched base. Um, so I guess my first question would be just, you know, what do you remember about this incident? I really don't remember much about the incident. Um, it was so long ago that I really don't remember. But when I reread the um, the report that my sister sent me, you know, I kind of do remember what you know how what had happened. You can tell it's a terrible connection, but at this point, I did not care. Evelyn remembered a lot. Actually, she told me she heard the gunshots. She told me she raced to the window to see what was happening across the street. And then when you looked out the window, did you see anybody outside? Yeah, there was a lot of cops. Um, and then I could see the guy who had broken into the, um, the home. I could see him kind of peeking through, um, through like a corner of the apartment complex that was in front of like, where we live. Just to paint a picture here, after the shooting, Billups was hiding in the yard next door to the burglarized house. A driveway runs between the two properties. Deputies were shouting and pointing guns down the driveway. Evelyn saw Billups behind the back of the building. He was poking his head in and out. And then did you see, so I know you could see a little bit of the uh, suspect. Could you see anything in his hands? He was holding something. I just don't know what he was holding. I, I didn't, I didn't. I don't think he was a gun at that moment. I didn't think he was holding a gun. I don't think he had a gun. But when I was interviewed, that's what they told me. And I was just kind of like, oh, okay, well, I guess there was a gun. So she went along with it. I asked her if she heard any commands. She said they were telling him to come out. I asked any commands about a weapon? Maybe, she said, but she doesn't remember. 
I asked her if she remembered the suspect saying, I have a gun, which is in the witness report. She told me she's not sure she heard that. I thought maybe she had at least seen Billups's gun abandoned, or Deputy Nzunza picking up the gun, or maybe Nzunza climbing over the fence to grab it. Did you see any other weapons like laying on uh, in that area? Like, you know, not in, not in the officer's hands, but maybe on the street somewhere or anywhere in that vicinity? He might have like tossed something out, but I, if it was a gun, um, I didn't see it. But when I did the interview, that's what they told me that he had tossed. When I saw something, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to say like, oh yeah, there's a gun right there. Which is like the guy tossed something, um, on the like on the floor. Did you see anybody c- collect whatever was tossed? Did you see it getting picked up or anything? No. There's so much to unpack about what this witness saw and didn't see. Bilbs was holding something. It could have been a gun. He also could have been taking off his blue hoodie. Official reports say he did so at some point. Nzunza said the gun drop was moments earlier, before the hiding. Let's say for a second what Evelyn saw was Billups throwing a gun. Deputy Nzunza said he picked it up right away. Evelyn doesn't see this. One thing I'm more certain about, Evelyn puts at least one other witnessing deputy at the mouth of the driveway. Besides Deputy Nzunza and his partner, Eric Sibrian, if that's who she saw. From records I have, there's at least three additional deputies in front of the houses soon after the shooting, Velasquez, Oakley, and Zamorano. With all these eyes, why didn't the other deputies report seeing Billups' gun? Or seeing Nzunza pick it up? But getting back to Evelyn, here's what stuck with her about the interview. Like, I remember when they left, I saw a little, like, um, like, I didn't really say those things. Like, they were just kind of like, well, this is how you felt, right? Or this is what you heard, right? And I was kind of like, yeah, I, I guess that's what I heard. Um, so that's I, I just felt a little uncomfortable because it didn't feel like I really said those things. It just felt like that's what they were telling me. And that's how I was, you know, I just felt like, yeah, I, I guess that's what I heard or I guess that's what happened. Uh, because they were just making the statements and I was kind of just agreeing to what they were telling me. If investigators had pushed Evelyn on this, they didn't end up going with it. Investigators did not write that Evelyn saw a gun in their report. I asked DA officials about this. Their investigator, Sean Robinson, was at the interview. He declined to comment for the story. In a statement, a spokeswoman for the DA said to suggest that investigator Robinson posed leading questions is a gross mischaracterization of the witness interview. The spokeswoman said Robinson can be heard on tape asking succinct and open-ended questions. And the witness twice stated she heard Billups say he had a gun. The DA refused to provide this tape. I reached out to the sheriff's investigator who interviewed Evelyn. Brian Schoonmaker is retired now, a pastor at a church. Pastor Schoonmaker was willing to talk, but he didn't want to go on tape. He denied asking leading questions. He said it's his policy to shut up and let them talk. You don't want to put ideas or thoughts or evidence in their mind, he told me. He seemed offended. I asked about it. 
He wrote me an email later. Quote, If the goal of your investigative reporting is to negatively scrutinize LASD personnel for doing good and difficult work, I am not interested in furthering that cause. My stance is based on a few old proverbs, which help me put this all into perspective. Schoonmaker lists several Bible verses in the email, including this one. To impose a penalty on a righteous man is not good, nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. I also brought up Evelyn with former Sheriff's Department Sergeant John Fredendahl, the homicide investigator who you heard from at the beginning of the episode. The other thing I wanted to um, run by you, uh, I talked to one of the witnesses, a woman who was across the street at the time of the shooting, and um, she didn't witness the actual shooting itself, but she comes to her window right after shots fired and observes what happens next. And um, when I talked to her, she said that she could see the suspect hiding behind the building and that she could see something in his hands, but she couldn't see what it was. And then she said, but what I remember most about the interview with homicide detectives is that they kept telling me that it was a gun. Um, and she's like, I felt like when they left, I didn't actually say those things, that they were just suggesting it to me. And, you know, you've been out on so many of these cases. Does, is that odd that she would feel that way? Well, I can't I can't comment on her her thought process and, and that sort of thing. I, I can tell you that we don't uh, we don't pressure people. Um, we know based on the circumstances of the incident and the evidence at the scene and the fact that a gun was recovered, uh, some people are just afraid to to be forthright as to whether or not it was a gun. We, we asked, did you hear gunshots? And we try to walk them and talk them through for memory recall and try to get the um, specifics as to what they saw. So you, so it's never a, sort of like a suggestion? No. Well, I mean, they, the, the witnesses may perceive it as a suggestion. However, we're just we're, we're, we're going for memory recall. Um, even, even a witness in a situation like this... Um, based on everything that happened out there that day. Um, people react differently as to incidents, uh, shooting incidents, uh, trauma, if you will. And then ultimately, everything is recorded. We don't want, the, uh, we don't want the, the court to perceive that. We don't want the DA's office to perceive that. I don't want my supervisors to per- you know, perceive that. And uh, we move forward from there. Right. And it's, it's really your job to protect the integrity of the investigation. Absolutely. And it's, uh, it is very, very important to us. Um, I mean, given all the scrutiny of officer-involved shootings, you know, I think um, it's a really interesting conversation to talk about, you know, these investigations. And then the fact that, you know, many departments are charged with investigating themselves. And, of course, they say they're best positioned to because they're detectives, right? Um, but... Uh, I guess that when I was reading through this case file, I just was wondering, are these detectives or are you as a detective suspicious ever of, a, of what a cop says happens? You know, that that suspicion or skepticism um, that makes for good investigations. Well, to be honest, I mean, no, you know, no, no case is perfect from the standpoint of Everything is exact from A to Z involving all entities. And I'm talking about deputy shooters, witnessing deputy, civilian witnesses. The only time, to be, to be perfectly frank, that, that I, I raise a suspicion 
is if a statement is outside the realm of what we know and what we can prove. Um, if there's a discrepancy, like in this case, the shooter deputy gave a statement and his partner was in a situation or a position uh, that he didn't see, um, you know, what happened, that is what it is. The witness across the street, you know, heard gunfire, um, saw the suspect hunkering down around the corner of a building or whatever, and he had something in his hand. Um, that's okay. That's all uh, cooperative based on the totality of the investigation. Again, to reiterate, discrepancies. I like discrepancies. That was the difference between me and Fred and Dahl. Fred and Dahl was not bothered by the gaps. I am. Fred and Dahl had named his suspect the day of the shooting, Tanel Billups. It's in the paperwork. He had enough to close his case. But the gaps bothered me because I don't see evidence that Billups's claim was fully investigated. The claim that he was unarmed at the time of the shooting, that the gun was planted. Officials promised a system of checks and balances. All these eyes. Someone to catch if anything is overlooked. Here's what I know. The Sheriff's Department was helping prosecutors prepare the case against Billups. Fredendahl went to Billups's preliminary hearing, talks to Nzunza between testimony. The second check, that's the district attorney. By the time the case file reached the district attorney, Nzunza's interview had gone from his statements of events to the facts of the case, either because they were fact or because other options were not fully pursued. I can't say for sure. The DA declined to speak with me. But there's another check here. What about the public defender's office? What about Billups's lawyer? Had they ever gone out to collect information on their own? They, too, declined to speak with me. I asked Evelyn, the witness, if she had heard from anyone there. She told me no, she hadn't. That speaking to me was the first time she had spoken to anyone since the shooting about it. Nobody, she said, ever came to her. Thanks for listening to Repeat from KPCC. Our editor is Evelyn LaRubia. Additional reporting from Aaron Mendelson. Production from James Kim. Trisha Tonko is our fact checker, and our designer is Katie Briggs. Our music was composed and performed by Andrew Epen. Thanks to the KPCC product, digital, and engineering teams. Our senior producer is Arwin Champion Nix. I'm Annie Gilbertson. If you want to support more work like Repeat, I have great news for you. You can do just that. Just go to kpcc.org repeat and make a donation. If every Repeat listener gave $1 per episode, we could fund a whole other investigative series. 
That's kpcc.org repeat. While you're there, you can find a link to our Facebook group. I'm there every day engaging with listeners and sharing more about what I have learned while reporting this series. I'd love to answer your questions and hear your thoughts.